0: In the early morning hours of June 10th of 1968, a young teacher named Irene Ezak left New York and headed to Canada in pursuit of a job opportunity. Irene was traveling alone in her tan 1965 Volkswagen heading north on Interstate 81 when she was pulled over for speeding by a New York State trooper. She was given a warning and sent on her way, but about 45 minutes later, the same state trooper who had pulled her over previously reported finding her lifeless body in a ditch near a heavily wooded area. This is a story of the murder of Irene Isaac. I'm Ashton and welcome to The Haunted Corner. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Haunted Corner. Thanks for tuning in today. I've got a story to tell you. This one is rough and in typical Ashton fashion, I hadn't heard about this case before. I came across the book that I'm about to tell you about on my Kindle when I was looking for new books to read, honestly, and I came across this book. It is called... The North Country Murder of Irene Ezak, Stained by Her Blood. And it was written by a man named Dave Champagne. So I use that book as a reference. It's really well written. I recommend it. Um, I also use several articles that I found on my side piece, newspapers.com. And the remaining sources will be listed on the blog post for the episode. Let's get into it. Irene Izak was born on July 22, 1942, in a small Ukrainian village to parents Bohan and Maria Izak. The family immigrated to America when Irene was very young, and they settled in the Scranton area. Bohan served as a pastor at St. Vladimir's Ukrainian Catholic Church, and the family lived a quiet life. Irene was described by those who knew her as a chatterbox. She was also said to be inquisitive and she did really well in school. She was reportedly kind and trustworthy and made friends easily. Irene was also fluent in six different languages. After graduating from high school, she studied at Marywood College, majoring in language with a focus on French. While in college, she was a member of the Slavic Club, and she eventually became club president during her senior year before graduating in 1963. After graduation, Irene got a job teaching high school French and eventually went back to school at Laval University. While studying, Irene went through some relationship troubles, as most women do, but it caused a lot of turmoil within her. And it was at this time that Irene was visiting family in Cleveland, and she was at a bit of a fork in the road. She was in need of a job and a change, and that's when she received a call from a woman she knew from her days at Laval University. The woman's name was Rosalie Banco, and she told Irene about a school district in Quebec that was interviewing English teachers for an open position. Irene, who was in need of a job, jumped at the opportunity and having only enough money for gas for the trip, she set out on Sunday, June 9th, 1968. Her first destination would be Rochester to visit one of her former roommates named Virginia Fitzmorris. Irene was planning to stay with a friend named Maxine Postal that evening, but instead changed her mind and decided to continue the drive to Canada instead. After exiting the New York State Thruway at Syracuse, Irene followed the signs to Interstate 81 and headed north. Now, here's what we know about Irene's trip after this point. Shortly after passing Watertown, Irene stopped at a rest area to use a payphone. Not long after she got back out on the road, Irene noticed a car pulling up beside her. It was a New York State trooper who was attempting to pull her over. He turned on the light in his car, placed his Stetson on his head, and Irene, recognizing the man as a state trooper, pulled her car over to the side of the road and stopped. At 1.50 a.m. on June 10th, Trooper David Hennigan notified headquarters that he had pulled over a tan Volkswagen. The trooper told Irene that she was going 75 miles per hour in a 65 mile per hour zone. He asked her where she was headed and what she was doing while reviewing her license and registration. And then in what some described as an uncharacteristic move, Trooper Hennigan let Irene go with just a warning to watch her speed. Irene headed on her way towards Canada and stopped to pay the toll at the Thousand Islands Bridge at 2.09 a.m. Shortly after, for an unknown reason, Irene pulled her Volkswagen off the road near DeWolf Point State Park. At 2.39 a.m., another radio call from Trooper David Hennigan came into headquarters, but this time he reported that he had found the body of a female down an embankment. An apparent homicide, he said. The body was identified as that of Irene Izak. She had been attacked and dragged over the guardrail before being beaten over the head with a rock Officers were dispatched to the scene, including Troopers David Fleming and Ronald Amiot. As they arrived at the scene, they they found Trooper Hennigan kneeling beside the body. They cut traffic off to prevent more cars from coming and going, and they searched the woods nearby. The other troopers noticed that there was blood on David Hennigan's uniform, which he claimed happened when he checked for signs of life. Trooper Hennigan reported that he discovered her car pulled off to the side of the road with the light still on and the door open. Irene's purse was still in the car when it was discovered. A pair of woman's glasses were found on the ground behind the left wheel of the car as well. More troopers arrived on the scene and began a door-to-door canvas searching for suspects and evidence. The Coast Guard assisted in the search, monitoring boat traffic and searching for suspicious activity. Trooper Fleming wanted to speak with the toll worker named Cliff Putnam, who had last seen Irene. And when he did, Cliff told him that Trooper Hennigan had scared Irene that night. He described how when she arrived to pay the toll that that night, her hands were shaking as she handed him the money and asked him for a light for her cigarette. She pointed to an unmarked police car driving over the bridge and asked Cliff why state police would stop a car without a reason in the middle of the night. He responded by telling her about burglaries nearby and hypothesized that this was the reason for the extra patrol. Troopers continued to search for evidence the next morning and Irene's family was notified of her death. Her body was identified by her brother-in-law and her family began the painstaking process of grieving the loss of their loved one. They, of course, had so many questions about what had happened to Irene and who might want to hurt her. Irene's father, Bohan, requested to speak with the trooper who had last seen his daughter alive, but his request was repeatedly denied. Trooper Hennigan refused to speak with them. Investigators began to theorize about what could have happened to Irene that night They initially thought that it was possible that she may have stopped to pick up a hitchhiker or was flagged down by someone who needed help when she was attacked. But by that point, police had become suspicious of the story that Trooper David Hennigan had provided from that night. One of the such people who was a little bit suspicious was Raymond Paulette. He was one of the troopers to arrive on scene that night. When he did, he noticed the car which had one of the windows rolled down about four inches and the other troopers who were already at the scene beginning the investigation. One of the troopers he encountered was David Hennigan. He led Raymond to the guardrail and showed him where the body was, which was difficult for him to see from where they were standing. And he noted this is strange because Hennigan told him that he initially located the body from where they were standing Raymond continued to search the crime scene and discovered several bloodstained rocks, some of which had hair and tissue on them. The rocks were determined to be the murder weapon, and most of the injuries to Irene had been located on the back of her head, with one bruise on her face, which led officers to believe that she had initially been struck in the face. But the thing that stood out the most to Raymond Paulette was the the blood droplets that he noticed on Trooper Hennigan's uniform. When asked about the blood, Hennigan stated that he rolled Irene over to check for signs of life and that her head had rested on his upper arm, which caused the transfer of blood. Both Trooper Hennigan's undercover patrol car and Irene's Volkswagen were taken in to be dusted for fingerprints and searched for further evidence. One print was found but could never be matched to anyone, One spot of what was believed to be blood was also discovered on the back of the patrol car, but before it could be preserved, it was wiped away or washed away by the rain. Investigators had David Hennigan retrace his path as he described it that night to determine if it was possible for him to be where he said he was when he came upon her abandoned car that night they determined that it was possible for him to have traveled the nine mile route and discovered the murder in the 25 to 26 minutes between when Irene was last seen alive at the toll booth and when her body was discovered by trooper Hennigan. Hennigan took two polygraph tests. The first was what they described in the book as flat. They were unable to get a reading on him, but he passed the second one. Several witnesses spotted the Volkswagen and the unmarked police car parked at the rest area. Two waitresses who had gotten off at 2 a.m. reported seeing the cars on their way home from work. A man carrying a Boy Scout troop in his car also noticed the cars and slowed down, but left when one of the other men in the car had a bad feeling about what was going on. Officers interviewed more and more witnesses as well as Irene's family. It was during these interviews that they discovered that Irene had made a phone call from a payphone shortly before her death. The call was traced to a rest stop on I-81 north of Watertown and also north of where Trooper Hennigan said he pulled Irene over for speeding. But the time of the call and the time that Hennigan notified his command of the speeding stop were conflicting. So red flags were going up everywhere. But Trooper Hennigan had a solution for the discrepancy. He now claimed that he had pulled Irene over after the phone call and in a location closer to the bridge. And he didn't pull her over for speeding, as he initially had stated, but he pulled her over as a routine check, just in case a crime should be later discovered. Sir, what? Why did his story suddenly change, and why did he claim he didn't recognize Irene's Volkswagen when he arrived at the rest stop, when she was the only one he pulled over during his patrol that night? It was later discovered that Irene's car wasn't capable of traveling the 75 miles per hour that Hennigan claimed she was traveling when he pulled her over initially. It could barely reach 60 miles per hour. David Hennigan was brought in for questioning by Raymond Paulette, as well as Joseph Leary, who was a Lieutenant in the state police Bureau of Investigation. They questioned him about the murder and his involvement, involvement, which he denied. But within an hour, Hennigan's wife showed up and the interview essentially, ended there. Some reports claim trooper Hennigan got a lawyer at that point and the trail went cold. That is until 15 months after the murder, When a man named Albert Cinebert, who was in prison in Toronto for parole violations, told one of the guards that he wanted to talk to homicide detectives about a murder. He had read the true detective story about Irene's murder and was only really able to provide details found in there. Investigators became convinced that he got gratification from confessing to murders he did not commit and he was sent back to jail. Another person of interest was none other than the co-ed killer himself, John Norman Collins. He had apparently been in the Thousand Islands area about 24 hours before Irene was murdered, but it was later discovered that he had left New York prior to Irene's arrival. Investigators were looking into every lead they could. Ted Bundy was even looked into, but they quickly learned that he was in Colorado at the time of the murder. Throughout the investigation, David Hennigan remained on duty. He was involved in a car accident following a car chase, but walked away with minor injuries. Eventually, he got really involved with his church, so much so that he became a deacon of the Roman Catholic Church. He split his time between being a deacon and a state trooper until his retirement in 1983 after 21 years with the New York State Police. And all this time, Irene's murder remained unsolved. Irene's father passed away in 1988, and her mother passed away in 1991 without knowing who killed their daughter. In the following years, family began to push for more answers, including Irene's niece, Lisa Caputo, In 1998, the family wrote to the then New York governor asking for the case to be reopened and all evidence to be reexamined and submitted for DNA testing. According to the book written by Dave Champagne, the family brought up ten items of concern. These included one, the discrepancies between Irene's speed and it on Interstate eighty one alleged by Hennigan and the speed capability of her Volkswagen as determined by Paulette and Donahue. Number two, Hennigan, as the man who found the body, had failed to offer condolences to the family. Number three, Hennigan had given to his state police colleagues varying versions of how he got Irene's blood on his uniform. Number four, Hennigan allegedly had a history of domestic violence and violent rage attacks. Number five, Hennigan was attracted to pornographic materials. Number six, Hennigan's official statement and alibi were never satisfactory. Seven, Hennigan's uniform raincoat, which he likely wore on the night of the murder, both disappeared. Number eight, Hennigan regularly asked his supervising officer for use of an unmarked car. Number nine, Irene expressed an emotion of fear about Hennigan when she spoke to the toll collector at the Thousand Islands Bridge. And finally, number 10, a man who was called the heathen by his state police colleagues eventually became religious after the murder and became an ordained Catholic church deacon. So these were the concerns that they presented to the then governor, and it worked. The governor read their request and reached out to the New York State Police Bureau of Criminal Investigation and asked them to reinvestigate the murder. Captain John Wood got into contact with the family and set up a meeting They later got permission to exhume Irene's body. During the autopsy, it was discovered that Irene was most likely killed by a single blow to the back of the head with a weapon believed to be possibly a flashlight that was never found. The blows to the head with the rocks were believed to have occurred after she was already dead. Reporters who tried to speak with David Hennigan following the exhumation of Irene's body and the new information that had been discovered were met with his lawyer's contact information. He died of heart disease in 2009 without being charged in the murder. No one has ever been charged in the murder, and it remains unsolved to this day. Many believe that the truth about what happened that night died with David Hennigan in 2009. Irene Isaac is buried next to her parents and her remaining family members still hope that the truth will be revealed one day. If you have any information about what happened to Irene Isaac, please reach out to authorities in New York State. I'm sure they would love to have this information and finally finally solve this case. And that is a story of the murder of Irene Isaac. Thank you for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed the episode. The sources for today's episode will be listed on the blog post for the episode at www.thehauntedcorner.com. I will link to that in the show notes as always. Check out the other episodes of The Haunted Corner available now wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts with new episodes dropping every week. If you're enjoying the podcast and would like to share your support, you can head on over to Patreon. You'll have access to exclusive Patreon-only episodes, early and ad-free access to the regular episodes, and a lot more. Plus, you'll be supporting the show, and it means a lot to me. Head over to patreon.com forward slash The Haunted Corner to join now. Follow us on social media at The Haunted Corner on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and TikTok. If you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to tell a friend. And if you have a case suggestion or a correction to share, please send it to thehauntedcorner at gmail.com or submit it through the website. Until next time, be kind and take care of yourselves and each other, and we'll see you soon. Bye.